0: Everyone, you made it to day four, or if this is your first day joining us, you're on the fourth day of four of our training series on setting best boundaries with clients. So the learning objectives for today will be to uh, describe two communication strategies to respond to client pushback during boundary clarification, explain how to integrate cultural humility and culture-based counter into boundaries, uh, describe special considerations for boundary communication in the context of threat or escalation, and summarize learning from the past four sessions. Finally, uh, you all know these. We're not doing breakout rooms. There will never be perfect or concrete no. answers. Uh, we can't speak to your agency policies, and you can expect to learn, maybe feel slightly uncomfortable. You should expect to have our uh, always our appreciation for your hard work, um, and we hope you'll unmute during our discussions. Okay, boundaries are important, we know, because of safety, quality care, and ethics. Um, We've talked about a number of different types of boundaries. Um, We will talk about safety to some degree today, Um, and we've talked about time, financial, uh, physical boundaries, and attraction, Um, and we will sort of uh, get into also... um, what to do when faced with sexually inappropriate behavior uh, from clients today. So a little different than attraction, a bit more on the safety side, uh, but we'll get into sort of the nuances of that as we go along today. Uh, We've talked about transference and counter-transference. A reminder, transference is the client to the provider. That's when their stuff maps onto you from their uh, background and past. And uh, counter-transference is the opposite, when your stuff shows up and how you respond to a client. Um, and stigma and bias are also these things that can influence how we set and maintain boundaries, how we perceive our clients, how open we are to them, how close we are to them. Um, and that's a little bit of a non sequitur. Uh, we've covered how many we get into this work, um, values and doing values clarification as an exercise, uh, our past experiences and being inspired by others who've done this work. And finally, last week, we talked about team and organizational communication around boundaries. And that was, um, I I think, a really, uh, we haven't, in our vignettes, we haven't gotten too deep into the team dynamics. And maybe we can spend some more time on that today because I think it's a really interesting um, and important aspect of boundaries Uh, in all the vignettes. Sometimes the team members aren't terribly supportive to what's going on and opportunities to have a person who's struggling with a boundary issue, as we saw a couple weeks ago, um, uh, maybe didn't have the chance to be heard and then shut themselves down or felt shut down, so didn't communicate further. Uh, So we really wanna promote supportive uh, communication around boundaries, and that would include uh, facets of proactivity, prevention, safe space, normalizing, strength space and collaborative teamwork, and the features of avoidant uh, communication would be more fear-based, taboo or stigma perpetuation, gossip or judgment, dehumanizing, secrecy, vilification. And I think we all know what the, those two sort of sound like, feel like. Um, we know when it's occurring, and it's not uncommon for some of those in the avoidant category to occur. Um, and so all you know, all we can do is try and set. Uh, the best modeling that we can for our teammates or our staff, depending on our role, and uh, address assertively, hopefully, which we'll talk about today, uh, using some assertive communication skills when we see people speaking about clients in a way that um, is uh, demeaning or devaluing or dehumanizing, um, as it's so critical that we see the people we are working through possibly really challenging boundary dynamics with as people that deserve our respect. All right. So we have talked mostly about workers not maintaining boundaries. Um, We've talked a little bit about, you know, when clients push our boundaries, maybe do maybe have some behaviors that are really challenging because that's how they've learned to get their needs met. Um, And we have to, you know, have the experience of saying no with that. Um, But we're going to focus more so on that sort of dynamic today um, versus what we talked about last week, which was more so. Um, the issues of uh, worker power and uh, unethical behavior on, on, the, on the behalf of the worker. So, what about when clients push back? What do we do when we've done our we've done our first step, we've set a boundary, we've communicated it, um, we've, or we've figured out what the boundary is. We've done the work to see what we need to say, uh, to see what the boundary should be. We've figured out where our counter-transference is coming in where burnout or vicarious trauma might be informing the situation. We've looked at stigma and implicit bias. We've done all of these things to figure out what what we should be saying, um, and what what boundary we should be setting. Um, And then we say it and the client doesn't like it um, and they push back. What do we do then? So this is sort of an outline here of what we'll cover today in regards to the experience of saying no. Uh, We'll talk through some effective communication styles. Uh, We'll talk just a little bit about threat safety and de-escalation. And something we will also do today is share some training resources with you. Um, We have some great recorded trainings um, on threat safety and de-escalation, as well as culture-based countertransference. And we also encourage you to always search our um, Learning Center for any of these topics or others that are really useful, but if you don't feel like we're doing a deep enough dive into, for example, threat safety and de-escalation, we have tons of material on it that will really get into how you can um, manage client pushback or escalation that occurs when you are setting boundaries. Okay, so we'll also cover responding to sexually inappropriate behavior, cultural humility, and culture-based counter-transference, as well as a vignette. Okay, so we all have different um, sort of personal or work-related feelings and thoughts that come up about saying no. Um, that is just the truth of it. And there's probably a bit of a blurry line there for many of us based off of um, our you know, culture, our rearing environments, maybe some of our identities. If we're a dominant or non-dominant identity, we might have more of a comfort level or feeling of um, confidence in saying no and managing pushback. Um, this is a, just an extremely unique thing um, for each individual, as is the case for our clients' responses to that. Um, when we say no, or kind of say something that we know maybe our client isn't gonna like, that they're, they, they could push back on if they so chose, we have to think about where their responses might um, help, the, sorry, the variety of responses that they might have as well, and try and work to anticipate that. Some feelings that might come up when we're setting limits with clients that they might not prefer prefer, or they might not be expecting would be shame or frustration or anger, maybe defiance. And in some cases, maybe appreciation or security that the boundary or limit is being set. Maybe it's a relief. And some behaviors that you might see could be aggression or pushback, or again, um, if it's a safety inducing boundary, uh, limit setting experience, compliance, maybe, uh, or withdrawal possibly. We might have folks that deal with some of those feelings above by withdrawing completely. Um, And that could be behavioral or verbal. So I will turn it to you all. Um, What is it like for you? Um, Instances where you've set a boundary where you maybe have some anticipation that it's not gonna go immediately smoothly, that there will be a reaction to it. maybe that there won't be immediately appreciation or security, maybe some of these other responses. Um, How do you deal with that? How do you manage your feelings around a difficult boundary communication? What some of your approaches are or what you, what's your self-talk or what resources do you rely on or what, what strategies, what, you know, what you use? OK, we've got consistency. Don't take it personal. You're saying, remind myself that the client may not have been taught boundaries before um, work and work from there. Yeah. And it is one thing for, you know, that's what we have to think about to keep ourselves able to not take things personally. But, yes, it's so good that you stepped in with your staff person and met with them together to be really transparent on this is the behavior. This is the problem. We can't continue. Um Okay, what else? Uh, Many clients have boundary issues. I do several sessions of understanding, exploring, and setting boundaries. So you just focus on it directly. Awesome. Well, I feel that I've expressed boundaries clearly and communicate if their behavior continues that I will need to leave. Uh, 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 In my opinion, it is vital to set boundaries from the beginning to set guidelines and expectations for both client and staff. Also prevention. Yeah, it's really having those conversations a couple of you were saying this um, early on um, in the sort of setting up of the relationship is really helpful if you don't have to backtrack and can um, set a precedent that's really good structure to work from okay what else do we have here not texting for case management reiterating that texting can be for scheduling appointments only okay that's a really practical solution for that yeah finally i remind clients it is important to have clear communication if they become angry and aggressive when there is a disagreement, I remind them for therapy to be effective. Safety for all participants is important. And if I'm no longer feeling safe, it, I will not be effective in the hope to explore how to discuss disagreement in a more effective manner. Yeah. So you're using your self-experience self of safety and help, hoping to uh, let them know that this is what you're trying to create for them so that you can have a conversation about the differences in opinion, um, but you're not experiencing it. So you can't participate. Okay. All righty. Thanks for sharing. I um, want to just outline a few sort of working understandings. And these might not be your working understandings. Uh, they're, I suppose, Chelsea and I's working understandings, uh, but they might be yours too. Um, we acknowledge that our boundaries will be crossed and that we will still have to work with a client um, being other focused. Uh, and again, you give the uh, example of when. That is no longer helpful because work is not really probably getting done at that point you've got and you need to preserve your staff also. um, And try and not create, uh, try to avoid uh, having relational environments that are just rehearsing um, inappropriate communication or pushback. All right, we have a goal of keeping clients engaged in services and creating a safe, consistent therapeutic relationship. And that is really important to reduce triggering client shame and abandonment, right? We talked about that with trauma-informed organizations. Turnover is like a big source of folks not really trusting uh, new providers when they get into a helping relationship with them. And it's unavoidable, but uh, it is something to be mindful of. Um, And there's no clear answer to this. We're talking from all these angles and I can easily sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I think you all understand. It is just like very, you're assessing the relationship and the situation um, case by case, day by day. Um, And this is also where a team approach is so critical, Um, being able to share the effort and being able to um, not have any sort of splitting or um, sort of isolative uh, relational issues when they start to arise, when there are real problems with uh, pushback. All right. And we have a responsibility to model healthy boundaries and encourage positive socialization. Right. So it's not just about us. We are doing a good thing for clients when we do this. It's not just about protecting um, our own ability to do the work. Okay, so this is a list of strategies for managing shame and pushback. Um, I'm forgetting uh, Bowers, I think, did this work in like maybe inpatient or outpatient mental health settings. Or some setting that's slightly different from most of yours, but they still really map onto uh, just globally what, what's helpful. Um, so this list starts with explaining the reason for boundary in plain language, not just setting it and saying this is the law, but saying this is why. Um, avoid personalizing, uh, and that means not making it about you, but not making it about them either. So just not trying to be a bit more objective and talk about behaviors or talk about program, uh, like what you what your role is within your program and the services that are being provided. Uh, we want to empathize with and offer support for feelings. If someone is saying no to your no, we can still empathize with their feelings, even though we're not going to budge on the boundary. Um, and there's a really important distinction between validating feelings and agreeing with what the person is saying. Uh, we want to be mindful of trauma-related responses, of course. We've probably talked about that at Nazim at this point. Uh, We can anticipate clients' coping approach to shame. Some people might get uh, angry. Some people might get really sad. Some people might withdraw and disengage. Um, So we can anticipate that and try and think about what the best approach will be to help them cope with that. Um, Affirming client strengths, highlighting where they do have autonomy despite boundaries being communicated. Um, This is something that's good to do in any situation, always trying to remind folks where they have control and choice and uh it can occur even when setting boundaries um using respectful language body language awareness if I'm hunched up and have a stern face and look tense that is going to be uh my message will not be received as well and I will actually put that person in a state of like what is going on and possibly defensiveness as well um if I look that way They might mirror me. They might just have their own responses to someone looking like that. So trying to keep our bodies like, you know, neutral, still, calm, grounded is really critical. And we can problem solve where we can, right? Like there's no... This like you cannot contact me after five and there's absolutely no solution to your wish to do so uh, isn't going to work. We need to figure out with that person Well, what 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 other resources, what other strategies can be used to help them get their needs met. That doesn't involve uh, crossing the boundary. You're saying crossed arms. Yeah, I am awful for that. I stand around in social situations with my arms crossed and have been told by multiple people, you look angry. And I'm like, no, just, you know, being cozy and comfortable. It's a thing. It's a thing. So let's talk through some communication skills. Uh, I bet many of you are familiar with uh, the breakdown of communication styles uh, to passive, aggressive, passive, aggressive, and assertive. I will not go into great depth with each one, but passive is what it sounds like. Uh, this is someone who's a little bit more reserved, keeping quiet, speaks softly, maybe is apologizing um, in advance or excessively. Or just for like general communication apologizing for saying something um and hides disagreement uh the body language is going to be small hunched avoiding eye contact looking down um and the emotions that come with that uh could be helplessness low self-esteem frustration or resentment just not knowing how to express that um and the goals are to avoid conflict to please others to let others take control um so aggressive on the other end of the spectrum is going to talk over others or loudly it's going to ignore or dismiss attack hopefully not in this uh not in a (laughs) helping circumstance um the body language might be threatening gestures uh penetrating eye contact which I think is really interesting when you stare really hard at someone and don't let them lose your gaze that is an aggressive body language expression um Feelings might be uh, anger, feeling powerful, remorseful later. um, People, when they're aggressive, when they're feeling that anger and frustration and that's feeding their communication approach, might not feel good about that afterwards. Um, And the goal is to control others, to win the situation at any cost and reinforce a power imbalance. Now, passive aggressive. This is. Possibly the most toxic of these, because it's so unclear what the actual truth of the communication is. Um, In passive aggression, we have, you know, uh, one person thinking something, but saying something different or communicating something different. Um, And the actions are that it denies personal responsibility. It kind of has covert aggression. There can be sarcasm. um, It can mean agreement and then defecting afterwards also. Um, So super inconsistent Um, body language might be similar to passive and what happens uh, is that you're getting your way without taking responsibility or asserting yourself so it's manipulative, it is like, whether you are meaning to do it or not if you are being passive aggressive. It is going to manipulate that person on the other end one way or another, either to either either you're effective and you get the outcome you wanted or it's ineffective and it just communicates confusion and inconsistency. And we have that person on the other side responding to that um, alone of like they're saying one thing, but they're acting another way. Uh, What is what is the truth here? And then finally, we have assertive. And this is, you know, where we want to be. Um, Assertive directly expresses needs, expects others to be open and honest, and accepts different opinions. Uh, When we are being assertive and when we are setting a boundary, it's really important that we be able to listen to our response to it, to hear a different side, even if we're not going to agree to that other side. It's still important to respect and listen. Uh, The body language will be relaxed, comfortable, frequent, and gentle eye contact. Um, emotions are feeling sort of secure, positive feelings about self, positive feelings about other, maybe seeing so, having a bit of optimism, um, not having sort of all or nothing thinking or some other cognitive distortions at play. Um, and the goals are to express the truth of yourself or the situation. Find an agreement is also a goal. Keep fair boundaries and have respect. Um, So... What are some ramifications that you can think of of using any style other than assertive? Like what is a ramification of being passive or aggressive or passive aggressive that I haven't mentioned? Maybe if you have any other sort of maybe from uh, your own experiences or what you've observed in work, what are some ramifications? Okay, passive rules are unclear, damage to rapport. Missed opportunity, not having them understand your boundaries, being overlooked. Okay, I think these are all for passive, yeah. Uh, Passive aggressiveness breeds resentment, yeah. People don't like to be confused or to not know what someone is trying to communicate. Makes us uneasy and frustrated. It feels disrespectful, too. Um, With passivity, I don't know if anyone's familiar with, like, the Cartman drama triangle, something you can Google. It's kind of a neat way to understand the roles that people Move through in conflict. Um, when we act like sort of a passive victim role, that will put the other person that we are interacting with into either a rescuer role or a persecutory role. So they're either going to be frustrated with the situation uh, because they feel like they've done something wrong to make us act passive, or they're going to look at us and say, "Oh, you're being passive. Do you do you need help? Uh, can I can I help you?" So. That's not something we want to introduce ever into our client relationships. We don't want to turn them into having that, having to choose one of those reactions. Okay. Uh, The client runs the session and the treatment process when you're passive, yeah. And aggressiveness, hopefully we're never being aggressive, um, but obviously that's gonna trigger a lot of issues. And then again, passive aggressiveness is confusing and it destroys trust and safety. All right. Let's move to another sort of way of uh, considering communication. Um, some of you might be familiar with nonviolent communication. Um, it's actually a book that's really sort of a, a lay person's book. Um, it can be used in many settings. I think a lot of companies actually use it in uh, teaching their employees good communication skills either for like, you know, business clients or internally. Um, so it really applies like across the workplace, across maybe the helping professions um, and even in your personal life. Uh, It's an interesting read. It's a little formulaic, um, maybe not the easiest to sort of uh, put into practice, but it sounds a lot like just basic assertive, uh, sort of I-based communication, self-based communication. Um, But some of the tenets of it are that uh, request making and also known as boundary setting uh, has to come with, uh, it has to be a request. Um, if it comes with other stuff, it's a demand. So we want to focus around request making as, in the ways that we set boundaries. And that has to do with framing. It doesn't mean that we're going to accept the no <laughs> of the request, but it does mean um, we need to use that sort of language. So uh, other points of nonviolent communication are to use positive action language, uh, highlight choice, uh, requests include empathy. Also, that's, that's a part of it. You need to sort of acknowledge what the other person is experiencing um, as much as you're able um, accurately. And demands are often followed by judgment. So uh, when we're when we are being judgmental versus sort of objectively describing the situation, um, that's when we can teeter into demands. Um, including feelings, needs, vulnerability to make a request not sound like a demand is a is a strategy. This is where sort of the manipulation piece maybe comes in a little bit. You're trying to get a desired response by using NBC, um, and you're going to rely on empathy to navigate resistance. Um, an interesting point about it, why it's sort of hard to do, uh, is in that NBC considers. Um, that feelings have to be feelings. They can't be uh, what someone else is doing to you to be a feeling. So, sorry, that sounds really confusing, but the example will elucidate this. I feel disrespected or attacked implies action on behalf of the other person and is a form of judgment. So when I say, Chelsea, I just feel disrespected the way you spoke to me, I am now implying that she is being disrespectful. I've implied a behavior on her part and it's not a feeling. I might think in the core of myself that I feel disrespected. No, that's my feeling. It's not, that's a thought. It's an. It's a judgment on what I think she's doing. Um, attacked also, uh, ignored, abandoned, all of these things are, you're implying what someone else is doing and what that does, if someone doesn't identify with being disrespectful and abandoner, um, an attacker, or whatever, they're not gonna feel good about that and they're gonna defend and they're not gonna give a hoot about how you're feeling. Um, so I need to say, I feel sad. I feel uh, worried. I need to make it about an actual feeling word, which I know you all are familiar with all of the feeling and emotion words out there. Um, But this is one of the specific specificities of NBC. And it's a little bit hard to do that. Sometimes we (laughs) are going to say when you when you fill in the blank, I feel um, something that has to do more with their behavior. But if you can catch it, uh, not including descriptive words of the other person's behavior can be helpful, yeah, or you made me mad, yes, um that makes the person the, the that makes them an action person of that, and it means we're not taking responsibility for how we feel. okay, so the four step process of NBC is observation, feelings, needs, request, um so observations again are different from evaluations or judgments. um it's what a video camera might record. It uh, remains open to clarification. Also, feelings different than thoughts. Um, we are responsible for our feelings. Uh, we can't make them. We can't say that someone else made us feel a certain way. Um, needs are different from strategies. Uh, they're universal. Strategies are personal and specific. Uh, so needs are like the roots of our feelings, and they need to um, they need to be very specific and have to uh, be in the realm of something that someone else that the client might need as well. We can't have it be like hyper-specific to our own experience. Um, so an example of NBC might read something like, uh, let me give you an example. You call me after hours. I feel irritated because my need, uh, for getting rest to be good at my job is not met. And then for requests, we want to focus around, um, Not making it a demand so not including any judgment then and using sort of positive language um, and making it concrete, so I can make the request of. Would you be willing to let me know you understand this that you hear what i'm saying and not call after 7pm something specific, so a little formula here if you're needing to sort of just get a script together. All right. so. Assertive communication and MVC are not like magic bullets, they're not going to, they're not going to ensure that there isn't pushback, but they might guarantee you some of the, like a greater chance of having your one uh, tip limit uh, being received uh, with some flexibility. Um, really, I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing over and over again, like being objective and observations being empathic, being direct, being consistent. Um, there are a lot of commonalities between assertiveness and NBC. Alright, so a little bit on threat safety and de-escalation, just a teeny bit here. Because um, it is a complex topic. <laughs> Understanding threat and provider safety. So there are subjective and objective aspects to this. Um, how we perceive threat and safety is very is going to vary person to person just like our experience of saying no and our anticipatory comfort or anxiety around that is really going to differ person to person based off of our identities based off of our you know what's going on in our lives uh the relationships we've held before or um our yeah or maybe our trauma histories if we have them um if i have been you know If I've endured some like physical violence or uh, any sort of um, sort of I don't know trauma that had to do with violence and someone is being really verbally aggressive with me and threatening that that might be really hard for me and I might not I might have a trauma response to that that someone else who hasn't had that experience might not have very simply put but you can think on others um, and Chelsea can I mean you can think about it endlessly as we talk about sexually inappropriate behavior and how tough that can be for folks who have experienced sexual assault um, and are trying to really differentiate between I'm not trying to personalize this, but really triggered uh, when this person speaks to me this way. And it's it's not clear. It's really as a, a supervisor's job in that role uh, should sound probably a lot like Annie, what Annie uh, described earlier. Um, it is tough and um, we can't speak in generalizations about what should happen in those situations. Um, All right, oppression, I think as I was just mentioning that, like if you are of a certain identity, um, if you are non-white, you aren't heterosexual, you aren't cisgendered, Um, if you are not, I should say male cisgendered, um, uh, any non-dominant identity, uh, you're going to also be possibly a greater risk for violent behavior just because of um, prejudice and oppression. Um, And there are also environmental factors that can play into that. So these are, I'm sorry, I'm sort of moving forward and I'm not meaning to. People who have non-dominant identities are going to experience oppression more so than those with dominant identities. With intersectionality, if you've got multiple non-dominant identities, you're going to have experienced more aspects possibly of threats to your safety, or you exist in a world where you're more aware of the threats that can occur to your safety. Um, So the lens is completely different than someone who is of purely dominant identities or fewer uh, non-dominant identities. And then separate from that, uh, there are objective aspects for risk factors for violent behavior, where you're working, what environment you're working in, it's field-based, like what settings, how isolated they are, a number of things. Um, So that's kind of where we'll stop with that. Um, With de-escalation, you probably have policies within your um, agency that can direct you on Uh, management of threat safety and de-escalation. In fact, you probably have like an HR or QA or compliance related training on this, I assume. Um, So definitely consult your teams or your agencies on what your best practices are. And again, we've got uh, training resources on that. And I will pop some of those links into the chat when I stop talking in about one minute. Um, Last little thing here. a little bit complicated, but um, this is a study that was done uh, comparing the experiences of mental health professionals to other workers, like people who work in medical settings or in education, um, and mapping out what what they found through their statements, like mapping some uh, themes from qualitative data of what was most important in successful boundary setting and maintenance. Um, And so, again, this looks a little bit confusing, but the gist is that body language was really important. um, And then most important, because it's bigger here, is listening skills um, and in order, clarifying and validating, responding, sorry, providing options, responding to need, personal environmental safety, and limit setting. Limit setting comes at the end there because that's like the last uh, thing you want to have to approach. You want to do all these other things sort of first before having to set a hard limit. Um, And another point from the study was to communicate boundaries primarily outside of crisis. So in advance, uh, when someone's escalating uh, is not maybe the best time to uh, uh, bring in boundaries. This is in situations where de-escalation is necessary. That's not like (laughs) the best time to say, remember, I told you no on this, or we're not doing this, or I'm not doing this. Um, We wanna focus on uh, ways of calming the situation down. And these numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and six are probably gonna be the more important considerations. And I will hand it over to Chelsea.
1: Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, I see a, a comment in the chat. It's important to not get on their level. Uh, and try to deescalate. Yeah, not let your own kind of internal reaction rise with theirs and um, keep your a cool head so you can help with the deescalation that totally makes sense to me. Um, so we're going to talk about responding to sexually inappropriate behavior. Um, and, we'll, you know, when we're talking about sexually inappropriate behavior, we're talking about that it can run the gamut from um, Clients telling suggestive stories or offensive jokes to asking their client or asking their helper, worker, support person out on a date, kind of thing. Um, Maybe winking or holding on too long during a handshake, uh, using terms of endearment for a worker. These could go into sexually inappropriate behavior like uh, dear or sweetie. But then they, those are, those are all pretty mild, all of those examples, Um, which I just wanted to, because sexually inappropriate behavior looks like uh, we might think of um, like the extremes. So I do want to say this is a spectrum of behaviors that can result in discomfort for the provider. Um, And so some other you know, actually crossing a boundary, uh, violating a boundary by, um, you know, someone exposing themselves to you, that would be severe, right? So we have this spectrum of mild to severe. And of course, we wanna be able to set and clarify and reiterate boundaries, um, especially uh, as soon as we notice this kind of behavior. So that doesn't escalate into that more severe level. Um, so one way that we can kind of think about responding to these uh, behaviors is using this acronym LIMIT um, kind of has a variety of things that we can do to cope with what's going on and respond to it. Um, and so what, what is interesting about you know this compared to what we we're talking about before, it's really Assertive communication really plays into this. The self reflective practice that we've been talking about plays into this. It's just, you know, uh, presented in a slightly different manner. So we have the acronym LIMIT. L stands for look after personal safety. Of course, that's always, you know, paramount. Everyone, safety is the priority for everyone in the interaction. Um, identifying the cause, what potentially could have contributed to what's going on, um, you know, what? what's the context, how often is this happening, what are contributing factors, things like that. Um, M is for maintaining a professional role. Um, some ways to do this would be to use pauses before reacting to consider how to respond. I talk a lot about creating space between the emotional reactions we have and our intentional responses so that they are intentional instead of just a reaction at our client, because usually that's not going to be in anybody's best interest. So really wanting to use pauses, uh, with our clients, so that we're not just reacting. It could also look like being mindful of your countertransference and, you know, implicit or explicit biases you might have that we've talked about before. Um, and then we have the other I, which is implement appropriate boundaries, which we've been talking about this whole time. Um, so I won't go too much into that. And then talking with a supervisor is the final uh, step there, which. You know, we've talked a lot about this self-reflective practice, being able to check in with a supervisor practice for these situations can be really helpful. Um, but I'll go into a little bit more about what uh, we can do when these come up. Here we're looking at the uh, motivations for um sexually inappropriate behavior. And I'm sorry, because the acronym, I know SIB, I think of self-injurious behavior, just from my clinical work. Um, so we are, we are talking about sexually inappropriate behavior with the same acronym, just so you know. Um, and so when we're looking, trying to understand why this behavior is coming up, it, we can look at it in these two different ways. We can look at the behavior and kind of try to figure out, is this intentional? Is the client doing it on purpose or is it unintentional? Do they not realize that it is a boundary crossing? Um, And then the other two ways we can think about it are, is this an affiliative behavior? Is it meant to bring the client and worker closer together? Or is this a distancing behavior where the client might be trying to create more space between the uh, provider and them. Um, so this can help us understand, you know, the seriousness of the behavior and figure out a plan to deal with it. So, for instance, if you look at the intentional affiliative example in the top left uh, box in this little grid we have, uh, we have a long standing client who knows the limits of the professional relationship, asking worker on a date. So. This person has been meeting with their uh, helper for a while and knows the limits of the professional relationship. So they're intentionally crossing the boundary by asking the the worker on a date. This might, the response to that is going to be really different than a brand new client who's politely asking a worker on a date because that we're. when you're having a new client who maybe a boundary hasn't been set before, they haven't been exposed to boundaries, um, like thinking about boundaries in this way, you would respond in a very different way. Um, and so that, the same can be for situations that cause distance between the uh, client and the provider or helper. Um, so if you think of the difference between these two scenarios, Um, We've got the intentional one being responding to a sexual history question with a curt invitation to experience it at a client's home. Um, This is an intentional boundary crossing. Um, You know, the client is aware that it is not appropriate or, um, you know, not not in the best service of the worker to be saying something like that. However, they're using that to create some distance between themselves and the worker, maybe because of shame that might be going on around in, uh, their sexual history, or perhaps the match between the helper and the client. Um, they have different identities that make it uh, more difficult to bring up some of these topics. You know, I think of gender, first of all, If are different genders between the provider and the client. It might feel extra uncomfortable to talk about sexual history. And so, you know, kind of throwing out this uh, CURT invitation might uh, be used to create distance. Um, And, you know, and that certainly can happen because that would make us feel very uncomfortable as the provider, right? Um, And then if you think of an unintentional distancing, situation. this might be a client makes an, an inappropriate joke when anxious about discussions around sexuality. So he, they're not they're not trying to cross a boundary necessarily, um, but they are trying to create distance in by bringing in this kind of inappropriate joke um, instead of answering a, a question directly. Um, so these are things that we can think about to help us, understand what's behind the sexually inappropriate behavior because it's very nuanced. It's not, um, there's no clear understanding of why this is happening necessarily. And so having a better idea can help us come up with a solution. Um, One last point on this slide is if we think of these intentional versus unintentional behaviors, I think we can often sense whether there's intention or not there. Um, and if if we're presented with someone who might be engaging in these either affiliative or distancing unintentional behaviors, that might give us a clue that they have uh, an opportunity to work on some social skills. Perhaps this person um, is interacting with you like they would someone out in the community. And this could be an opportunity to uh, really using your therapeutic interventions, really using your engagement and rapport and your um, assertive communication. You can uh, figure out how to how to help that client develop more skills in interacting with people in a professional capacity. Um, So that can be helpful as well. So once we've you know kind of tried to understand what might be going on um, that's contributing uh, to this experience that that the you might have as the helper of discomfort of anxiety fear all kinds of things might come up for you depending like Elizabeth said on our individual histories backgrounds cultures environments um, all our layers of identities Um, once we've kind of. about what's going on for our client, we can also figure out what our plan is to correct the situation so that the relationship can continue. So some ways to cope are, you know, the first one here is discussions with supervisors. And you can see I have the the acronym from limits earlier listed here. We don't really need to pay too close attention to those letters. Um, The point here is to think of what do we do when this comes up? And, Uh, One of the reasons we wanted to include this is because a lot of this is something you just learn on the job. I know for me in grad school, nobody talked to me about what to do if a client, I feel I'm feeling sexually harassed by a client, which I realize is not a nonviolent communication way of stating that. But, you know, when you're feeling afraid or feeling triggered because of experiencing sexual harassment or other things in the past, it can be really just. Mind-blowing to be, okay, how do I continue to work in this supportive relationship when this other thing is happening? So discussions with supervisors, and I would also say others on your team, your peers, your colleagues, people you know who do this kind of work as well is super important. Um, We can use these conversations to practice how we're gonna respond to the client. You know, when this stuff started happening with clients with me, early in my career, I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do. I knew what I would do on the street if I was uh, someone said something to me, I had one way of handling it, but that didn't feel therapeutic, what do I do? And so um, being able to uh, sit and think about how to respond to it is is great. So if you have been in that situation and you haven't known what to say and felt like, oh, I wish I had more tools to respond, that's okay, that's gonna happen. We're not always prepared for every single experience, but being able to reflect on those with in supervision with your peers can be super helpful in thinking about what you would do next time and coming up with some good responses that you could have to people. Um, and when we have, here we have examples of good responses, uh, good responses, can include, um, how do I, so I'm trying, it's kind of an interesting way I wrote this slide, but some examples of good responses would include three components. We wanna respond in a way that doesn't shame the client, but encourages more appropriate client interaction. So if we think about that affiliative distancing, kind of the difference between, when a client is trying to get closer or when a client is trying to put space between us. You know, we don't wanna increase the distance. We don't wanna um, completely, uh, you know, disrupt that therapeutic alliance you've been building with your client. So instead we want to reserve the judgment and the shame and respond in a way that's like we were talking about with assertive communication, that's direct. Um, we want to reaffirm boundaries and we want to respond in proportion to the risk that is represented by the behavior. And so when I talked earlier about the spectrum of what sexually inappropriate behavior could look like, we don't want to respond to a client asking someone out on a date as we would respond to a client who, you know, takes off their clothes in session, right? That's going to be very handled in very different ways. So um, those are kind of, some things to consider when practicing and thinking about good responses you might have. Um, Responses when risk are involved are going to be very different than when risk is, when things do not seem as risky. And when risk is involved, we need other people to support us in figuring out how to best respond. Um, In uh, in addition, if sexually inappropriate behavior is ongoing uh, with clients, We might want to capture this in our treatment planning and have it be actual part of a client's work uh, towards recovery. Um, And by doing that, we can continue focusing on it. We can normalize that for our client that this is a process of uh, maybe learning some skills to avoid that kind of behavior in the future. Um, And it can help us keep track and checking in with both our supervisor about how the client is doing, and as well as the client, how they think they're doing, how they feel about it too. Um, And then of course there are systemic responses. Um, If there's a severe sexually inappropriate behavior, there's going to be a big response, um, both by uh, your agency or organization, there might be a response for the individual that uh, has engaged in that behavior. Um, and I like, you know, what brought up at the beginning, where we have, um, you know, bringing, bringing the system into the conversation makes sense sometimes when we have been trying to deal with this kind of behavior, in um, using all the other methods and they're not working as well. We might want to just get into bringing in our supervisor and seeing perhaps uh, what we can do. Um, that might improve the situation. All right. So those are the. That's you know the the foundation I want to talk about responding to sexually inappropriate behavior. And I just wonder what folks think. What have you, or how have you practiced uh, responding to a client? Um. I guess the reason I'm asking is one way that you can work on this is to say I, I'll give you a personal example because those always land really well for me I had a client who would um, you know give me compliments and I felt uncomfortable but it it didn't go to a place where it felt like a boundary violation or anything it just felt like oh okay I want to keep this uh, you know I want to keep this Therapeutic relationship. I want to keep the rapport going, but I don't know how to get out of this discomfort that I'm feeling. And so I checked in with my supervisor and we practiced, actually role played together, how I could make that statement without shaming the client and while honoring my needs and the client's needs and really getting into um, uh, an understanding being able to use a variety of approaches is helpful. And if, say for instance, in your example, if, um, or if anyone was in this situation you try to change the subject and they keep coming back, one way of forming a good response, just to give everyone an example before we move on, could be to, you know, we wanna not shame the client, we wanna reaffirm the boundaries and we wanna respond in proportion to the risk. So for say that, A new client is asking about the limits of your relationship. You know, maybe asking out on a date or saying something that's feeling inappropriate. You could say something like, "I I can understand why you would ask about what's possible in the relationship that we've formed. However, because our relationship is a professional one, you and I will never be able to have a relationship that is anything but professional. It would go against my ethics to enter into a personal relationship with someone who is or has ever been one of my clients. So having kind of a response like that, that really is embedded in, you know, uh, validating that it's, you know, people do have emotional reactions to other people, but being very clear about the role of your relationship in this person's life, it's not a personal relationship, it's a professional one can be helpful. Um, So if it goes, if if you, If the interaction keeps going in the way that it started, you can be very direct in that way and go from there. We're going to talk about uh, pretty quickly some concepts related to cultural humility um, and how this can factor into boundaries. So first let's just get on the same page about what we're talking about when we talk about cultural competence and humility cultural competence can be defined and these are both definitions by the National Association of Social Workers for social work. I can't remember exactly how that acronym goes. Um, But for cultural competence, it's a heightened consciousness of how culturally diverse populations experience their uniqueness and deal with their differences and similarities within a larger social context, and it requires that cultural competence requires that we use intersectionality approach to practice, understanding that, you know, folks have layers of identities and that the intersections of those identities are going to be um, a different experience for someone who doesn't have those multiple identities. Um, And so, for instance, someone can experience both racism and sexism. And if we leave one out of the Uh, equation, we're not really understanding everything that's going on there. Um, Cultural competence also includes action to challenge institutional and structural oppression and the accompanying feelings of privileged and internalized oppression. Um, And so, you know, I've moved away from cultural competency as uh, the way I think of my goal in this realm. I'm I'm much more in line with cultural humility. In the past, I know cultural competence was taught as a way to uh, try to understand all the cultural things going on with all different kinds of people and really have a mastery of that. And we know now that that's not possible. We can't know everything. So um, I really have appreciated this um, transition into cultural humility. And also uh, sometimes folks use cultural responsiveness feels feels uh, much more realistic um, and honors the fact that we don't always know what's going on with other people, especially if they are different from us in multiple ways. Um, so cultural humility refers to the attitude and practice of working with clients with the presence of humility, you know, you're being humble. Um, we're humble that we don't know we're about not knowing everything. So we're wanting to learn, communicate, offer help and make decisions. Um, Knowing that we need to be open to hearing others' experiences and um, accepting those and factoring those into the ways that we uh, work with our clients. Um, cl- cultural humility is also a way of maintaining an interpersonal stance that is other oriented. That's, you know, we're not um, the experts, our clients are. You know, we try to think about this in client centeredness. Um, You know, we really want to internalize the idea that each individual is the expert of their own lives. You know, and cultural humility is another way to do that. You can't literally step into someone's shoes and understand what they've gone through. What we can do is uh, learn how to elicit that kind of information from people and um, and integrate it into our understanding of what they're going through, uh, which can help us continue to support them in ways that are effective and uh, culturally responsive. So I already talked a lot about this. Um, Some principles are ongoing self-reflection, looking for others' perspectives that differ from you, um, being open to clients' experience and perspective, really like being open to folks sharing um, from their perspective what's going on and, and acknowledging that that's true for them. And being teachable, willingness to admit mistakes and repair, just like um, I was talking earlier about the, you know, sexually inappropriate behaviors and we might not respond correctly, like perfectly, immediately. The same goes for cultural humility. There's never an end to um, improving in this realm. We're not looking for a goal of mastery. We're looking for a goal of continuing to be open and Uh, being uh, primed to learn from mistakes that we make, um, because they're really opportunities for growth and to um, create more closeness where maybe a rupture has occurred. Um, A cultural humility framework assumes that the practitioner is willing to relinquish the role of expert to see ourselves as inherently biased and as a product of the social systems we inhabit, and to allow that our best work is done in community rather than isolation, drawing on the perspective and experiences of others. I think that quote really gets to the heart of it. So, how do, what does this have to do with boundaries and what we're doing? So, in the past, um, we, you know, I, I called this the Y2K approach to processing counter transference in 1998. This framework for processing counter transference was developed. We think about the origins or unresolved issues that we have in our own personal lives that might be impacting the situation. We think about the triggers or the stimulus, the action that occurred that uh, made us feel some kind of way about what's going on with the client. This shows up as a manifestation, our reaction, our like immediate reaction that we don't quite have control over because it just happens. This can be internal, hopefully stays internal. We wanna keep them from going external because we want to be more um, responsive instead of reactionary. Um, and to do that, we, man- we use management or regulating um, by checking in with others about that manifestation, thinking about the unresolved issues that are related to it that may have uh, encouraged that reaction to occur. And then we think of what the consequences would be um, if we were to respond in, in line with our reaction, which might not be uh, very professional or, um, or you know, empathetic or compassionate, um, so there, there would be a difference if we're able to manage that reaction, the consequences are going to be much better, uh, like positive consequences for the helping relationship and your client. Whereas if you take away that piece, we're just kind of riding our emotions and that doesn't really help anybody in the situation. So um, this is related to the cultural component um, because there's a amazing psychologist, Dana Crawford. She has, uh, we have a training from her on our learning management system if you're interested on um, bias reduction and, She wrote her uh, initial thesis when she was uh, getting her doctorate on culture-based counter-transference. So thinking of counter-transference, not just about, oh, what we went through and then our clients bring that up and all that's going on. We're adding in a bunch more nuance about what's impacting. So we're thinking about culture identity as being... um, Inextricably you said the word, linked to all these different parts of dealing with the countertransference. So, our race, ethnicity, gender, age, socioeconomic status or class, religion, sexual orientation, language, medical or physical ability. There are more things we could put on here. These are all going to inform what the origins of the countertransference are, what our, our specific triggers are how that looks in our bodies and our minds, our reactions or manifestations, how we're able to cope with or manage or regulate that reaction in order to have a positive effect. And, you know, the spectrum of what the effect of that can be on the helping relationship. So we're just mapping on cultural identity to this process of getting through countertransference, And so we're um, I really like this way of looking at. issues that might come up when we're practicing cultural humility. Um, I like the the way of being able to map it onto counter transference, because it's something we think about a lot when we're working with our clients. Oh, that reminds me of my dad or something. Um, maybe that's one of my my experiences, you know, and then I'm like treating a client like my dad all of a sudden. Not not the best look for me as a professional. Definitely not helpful for the client. Um, And so we want to also think about how the culture, the layers of cultural identities might impact this process. So what might these look like? So let's look at what the manifestations are when we're experiencing a culture-based countertransference. One kind of bucket that we might fall into when we interact with someone from a different cultural background identity experience, and they bring up something that kind of triggers some of our cultural background experience, um, we might want to have this moving away. And it related to our whole topic of boundaries, too close or too far, right? Sometimes we want to move away like Homer Simpson, just fade into the background, I don't want to deal with this something to notice, right? It can look like all these things, denial, minimization, avoidance, withdrawn. This kind of goes along with the neglect part of the neglect overprotect um, spectrum. I can't remember what word we use. Uh, continuum, continuum. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> you almost you almost saved me. Um, so this is uh, just something to notice. Um, and the examples here really get to the cultural piece. So denial might be like colorblindness or denial of personal or individual bias or prejudice. You know, someone saying that sounded racist and you responding, I'm not racist. is kind of a moving away. You're not trying to understand, it's defensive. It's creating distance, right? On the other hand, we might wanna move towards instead like Betty White. You know, we do have a lot in common. Um, RIP, I think I made this before she died. Um, so, one way, uh, an alternative way might be that we get, uh, we want to move too close to the client and get into this kind of excessive curiosity that could be, you know, a dependency manifestation. We might, you know, get into enmeshment where we relate so much on this particular aspect of culture that you're going through and You know, I totally get everything about you, which is probably an exaggeration. Everyone is unique and you potentially um, don't understand exactly everything that's going on here and you might be losing some of the nuance. You know, like for instance, I'm a queer woman and if I had a client who was also a queer woman and all I wanted to do was talk about things related to her experience as a queer woman, I might be missing out on a whole bunch of other things that might be going on because I'm too invested in the shared experience we have. So it can go in different ways and then that can um, distract from really helpful things that could be happening in the relationship other than focusing on that. And then moving against um, is kind of like the, uh, pr- I, I would relate it probably to the uh, aggressive uh, communication style where we're over pathologizing people, we're using condescension or superiority or anger, hostility, and sarcasm. You know, a lot of these things also come up with burnout, right? We can start to feel more judgmental, want to create distance between us and the work because it, our own bucket is empty, you know, our own cup is empty. Um, So these are kind of the three categories that we want to think about moving towards, moving away, and moving against. And that's, you know, just we're noticing what's going on. Here are some uh, opportunities for self-reflection when you really want to pay close attention if these things are coming up. For instance, if a client's core beliefs and religious values conflict with your own, that's going to happen. And there's uh, it's a good idea to reflect on this and supervision with your peers, uh, because even if you have different values with your client, there's a way to honor um, your client's beliefs and your own and uh, be able to not get tangled in disagreements or um judging and shame so being able to really like break these down is can be helpful um if you fixate on one aspect of someone's cultural identity like I was talking about me if I you know if I had a a queer woman client and was fixated on the queer aspect that would be too much or maybe if I wasn't also queer if that's something that I was just very curious about you want to look out for that issues pertaining to socioeconomic status um when clients have explicit prejudices and biases, that can be really difficult to deal with and cope with um, your own biases, colleagues who have biases. These are all things that bring up a lot of these um, culture-based counter-transference and our opportunities to break it down. And yes, respect is the key, exactly. So this is just you know, the way that we would process our culture-based counter-transference. We want to, um, basically, if we don't process them, we're left with manifestations, your reactions, and the consequences of it. But we really want that blue box to be happening. We want to be able to manage our reaction. And so that means we need to check in with other people and break it down. What's going on? What are my unresolved issues that's impacting this? Am I too worried that I'm going to be wrong? Am I... Um, too, like, uh, defensive that someone's going to, they think I'm, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever the word may be. Um, And we want to think clearly about what actually triggered the situation, what your internal reaction is, and that can help you get a little space from that reaction and figure out how you're going to regulate and manage it for improved outcomes. So that is on processing CBCs. Now, we're gonna move into our vignette uh, and Elizabeth will take back over and we'll uh, bring in these concepts into a uh, good real world example.
0: Thanks, Chelsea. Um, Okay, so same format as usual. I'm gonna read through this vignette and then we're gonna go through some discussion questions and then add in a couple other layers of complexity Um, And continue to discuss. All right. So we have Chloe as a 29 year old case manager in L.A. who is new to outreach and case management. And Roger is Chloe's new client. He is in his late 50s. He's recently housed in transitional housing after many years of living on the streets. He has mobility challenges. He is alcohol dependent and he, he has had frequent hospitalizations for alcohol withdrawal symptoms, DTs. Specifically. Chloe considers herself strengths focused and appreciates Roger's sense of humor most of the time. Sometimes Roger's jokes or statements make Chloe feel uncomfortable. She tries to develop compassion by understanding that Roger's mental health and substance use might be contributing to this behavior. However, she continues to struggle with not taking it personally. She feels two ways about it. Last week, Chloe accompanied Roger to the liquor store near where he stays, and en route, Roger made a joke about Chloe's weight. Chloe felt angry and embarrassed. She glared at Roger and was silent the rest of the trip. A few weeks prior, Chloe was supporting Roger with ADLs, showing him how to make a bed. ADLs are activities of daily living. Um, After Roger made a suggestive, after, excuse me, comma, Roger made a suggestive comment to Chloe, inviting her to come to bed with him. She told Roger in an exasperated tone, that's not appropriate. He responded, rolling his eyes, where I'm from, women would take it as a compliment. Chloe notices that she feels on guard around Roger and starts to dread their interactions. She tells her supervisor that she really wants to transfer Roger to another case manager because he's sexually harassing her. Her supervisor says clients can't sexually harass you due to the power imbalance. And Chloe feels invalidated and resolves to not participate in all meetings until her supervisor notices. Okay. Two, what boundary clarification opportunities do you notice? Let me go back. Where
1: could Chloe clarify some boundaries? I think this person meant this to go to the chat, but it went to me and they said passive aggressive.
0: Mm, passive aggressive. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. In the beginning. OK. That's a message that just went to me. Um, The first time he made a comment. Okay, yeah, so earlier on, boundaries could have been clarified. Um, The bedroom comment making it clear about their boundaries. Negative remarks in the beginning, right? He makes that comment about her weight. Um, And we see sort of a passive aggressive response maybe there. So how could nonviolent communication skills have improved Chloe's first attempt to set boundaries around Roger's suggestive comment, um, come to bed? How could she have used NBC's skills um, when she responds to his come to bed comment? How she responds is that's not appropriate. And so with NBC, we have observations, feelings, needs, and requests as the four steps. So she says that's not appropriate. What is that statement? How does that does that sound like that feels like judgment to me? It's pretty subjective. It's not like an objective, you know, observation. You're saying, can we talk about this? So asking for permission to talk about it. Yeah, that's really respectful. It's a good way to frame things. Oh, you're saying. Yeah. So Chloe needs to be clear about what's not appropriate. What was it? What was it? The words? Was it his tone? Is it the circumstances? You're saying when you made that comment, I felt, okay. So he makes a comment, you're observing the circumstances or what's going on. Um, I felt, uh, fill in the blank, whatever the feeling was that Chloe felt. Um, and then she needs to figure out what her needs are. Um, maybe it's to uh, feel comfortable and safe uh, in a, in, um, when helping you at your apartment and make a request for uh, to not have that sort of language spoken about. Or whatever, you know, whatever her request would be that's specific. And he can probably identify with the the universal need of safety and feeling comfortable. Okay. And I think we've gone through this question already a little bit, but which of the four communication styles do you see Chloe exhibiting? I've heard passive aggressive. So do we see any assertiveness anywhere? I'm not sure I see any. We've got passive aggressive and aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. Um, she glares at Roger and then goes silent. So that could possibly be passive or aggressive or passive aggressive. I, I guess we'd have to sort of observe it in the context, but it sounds so confusing. Maybe it is passive aggressive there. And then exasperated tone. If that's not appropriate, that's maybe a little bit aggressive. Um, like she's expressing frustration, um, but, but she's not sharing you know, her feelings. She's being judgmental. Right, and then she moves into some passivity with her uh, supervisor, she goes to the silent treatment. Maybe she started out assertive with her supervisor, good point, we don't know. Yeah, Um, this is, we don't have all the details always. But it's very possible. Passive when he talked about her weight. Yeah. Yeah, you could interpret it multiple different ways. Like she's glaring at him and not saying anything. Um, It could be passive. I I don't know. I I think it could be passive or passive aggressive, depending on how long the glare was, how intense it was. (laughs) If he noticed it too, you know, did she glare at the back of his head or did she stare him in the eye? All right. It seems like she started taking the comments more personally as time progressed. Possibly, yeah, it's, you know, a boundary hasn't been set and these things keep happening. Okay. And she got triggered, right, and we are talking about a person here, Chloe is a person who probably has a myriad of prior experiences that might be impacting how she receives this uh, communication from Roger. Okay, check counterturn. transference you must be direct from the start, yep, all right. Um, So what could Chloe have said to her supervisor when she said clients can't sexually harass you due to the power imbalance? I know we might have a a number of opinions on whether the supervisor should have said that or not, but. uh, Let's say that's neither here nor there. What could um, Chloe say in response? That was not my experience. Okay, yeah, that's really short to the point. I don't agree, okay, yeah, I mean, I've certainly heard this from supervisors that have just been kind of like, No, that really can't happen they can't they can't harass you this that's not possible. this is they you know you are the person who has more power. um, you have to remember that, uh, and it can feel super invalidating, obviously, um supervisor needs to do a better job of validating uh Chloe's feelings, <laughs> but it's um uh how she can communicate with her supervisor is maybe using some NVC and saying, when you you say, communicate this to me, I feel this way, Um, I need to feel and experience this, can we do this? All right, let's add in some layers. So what changes if you know that Chloe comes from a culture that values thinness or not? And maybe what changes if Chloe has experienced sexual assault, I'll just go through all of these and you all can pick the ones that feel sort of resonant. Um, So what changes if you know that Chloe has experienced sexual assault? Um, What changes if you know that Chloe has already set this boundary with Roger more than 10 times? Maybe I'll pause there. Any reflections on those of how you would approach that differently? Or how she she might uh, be best to approach that differently? And maybe the first two are just observations of understanding that her needs as a provider, as a worker are gonna be different if she has experienced sexual assault. Um, And she might need to advocate or gain resources to manage like her own um, trauma triggers perhaps. Yeah, she could disclose that to the supervisor. She could, she could say this is triggering in a more significant way than you might be aware. EAP, yeah, therapist, supportive peer, yeah. Right. And same with the culture, um, you know, our clients aren't going to understand culture-based countertransference, but we certainly need to. Um, and our colleagues can benefit from understanding it, too, to understand why, what's going on with um, our responses. All right. What changes if you know that Roger comes from a culture that objectifies women? Do we, Do we set boundaries differently with Roger if we know that? How do we respect Roger's culture? And yet Chloe respect her own needs. I wonder if Chloe could explore Roger's culture when he says this is, you know, in my culture, this is women would you know appreciate a compliment. Wonder if that's something they could explore once their safety again. Addresses his statements. Yeah. Uh, maybe Roger could work better with a male, possibly. It might be that he his culture makes it so he can't fully uh, respect um, Uh, women in this role. And he might not be getting as much benefit from the services as a result. It's very tough when sexism or homophobia or racism shows show up in our clients. And we have to make the call on do we accept and respect that this is what they believe? Or do we try to see that that's not good (laughs) and might you know isn't going to improve their quality of life and their socialization and their integration into communities and society and try and address it it's always a difficult call all right so here is experience all right and then another these are just sort of angles on how we can maybe empathize with the situation differently on either behalf chloe's appearance reminds roger of a lost love from his younger days So he's having a transference, strong transference response um, that he isn't meaning necessarily to come off in such a a harmful way. His intent isn't harm. Um, And Roger only makes these comments after he's been drinking might be another factor here. In that case, there's a really practical thing Chloe could possibly do. Avoid working with him when he's been drinking. All right. Some other comments here ask about his empathy skills. It doesn't matter where he comes from. He must respect her boundaries whenever she tells him what she feels. You're commenting, I'm a Jewish woman. I worked with a white supremacist in my practicum. Very challenging, ultimately a good experience. I'm sure that is a very brief statement on a very complex and what it sounds like. Well, you're saying good experience. So I'll say a good experience, a rich experience that was um, probably very interesting and enlightening and educational. Um, work on them, say she can't come when he's drinking. Yeah. All right. Chelsea, you want to take over?
1: Yeah. So what aspects of cultural identity could be at play in this relationship? We already talked about, you know, um, perhaps maybe there's some, there's the gender difference, there's an age difference, right? Anything else you notice? He's not sober, so he might be. He uses alcohol. We don't know about Chloe. We don't know about her substance use. But it's a good thing to think about for um, Roger. That impacts, you know, his, uh, might impact his mental health, his physical health. Anything else? We don't know exactly what. Like the weight comment was about, but it could have to do with, you know, body size could be at play here. If there's maybe some fat phobia going on, we don't know, or um, the opposite Uh, gender identity, possibly. Yeah. So there's going to be multiple cultural identity aspects at play. Um, what type of reactions do you think Chloe's demonstrating? Is she, oh, yes, and socioeconomic status, right? You know, there's Roger is the client. Roger is living in, I believe, permanent supportive housing or transitional housing. Chloe is full-time employed. Um, you know, there is definitely a difference there that's impacting, not to mention the power dynamic between being a helper and being a client, right? um what what how is if we think about the culture-based counter-transference what manifestation is Chloe demonstrating is she moving away like Homer Simpson fading into the bushes trying to create distance is she moving toward trying to be like a superhero and take care of everything and maybe overestimate how much she is um how much she knows or is she moving against is it kind of uh feeling very like pathologizing or superiority i see away she's moving away she's creating distance she's moving away both from her uh this interaction with roger but also uh the with her supervisor right um, you know, that last statement there, Chloe feels invalidated and resolves to not participate in all meetings until her supervisor notices, which is a very passive-aggressive behavior, right? She's just not not going to go until someone brings it up. Um, that's kind of a moving against kind of scenario there, too. Um, so we think about how Chloe is not participating Um not showing up and that also isn't going to be helpful for this relationship and can move her further away from working with Roger. Awesome, okay, let's see. And if we think about Chloe's experience, could it be understood within this culture-based counter-transference framework? Um, Some questions that come to mind are, what unresolved issues are impacting her reaction? So what unresolved issues did you notice that came up? We have the, what changes if you know that slide that told us that she has a history of sexual assault. Um, anything else, the, the weight? Yeah, we, we're not sure what the weight is, what the issue is. She might, it might've been a, a negative comment about Like being too thin or too fat or whatever, somewhere, some body shaming kind of feeling was happening. And so that might be an unresolved issue for her because she really didn't know how to handle it in the moment. So um, that's great. Uh, That feeling of being objectified. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's a hard issue to resolve, especially if you're entering a new dynamic in which to deal with it, right? Where you're the helper and you have a client versus uh you know a more level playing field when you're out in your personal life dealing with strangers on the street or something it's going to be really different weight comments sexual comments invalidation of feelings when expressing feelings of of the case with her supervisor i think is what you meant yeah mm-hmm. stimulus of being alone in the room oh yeah you know her history of the sexual assault could really um, lead to traumatic or, um, what are we saying? Trauma responses. Being alone in the room with a man could be feel really scary for her. She got triggered and defensive PTSD. Yeah, she might have some. Um, we don't know if clearly can't diagnose her or anything from now, but there's certainly some trauma in her history and it, something triggered. Um, her and she felt defensive and that's good to think about yeah I wanted to know what specifically triggered her reaction like what did Roger say or do what was that moment and we're just kind of practicing what was the trigger she started feeling she started to feel on guard around Roger and dreaded interactions with him Yeah, I would say that's the manifestation. That's the moving away. That's what, you know, that's kind of her initial response. Is I got to get out of here. Yeah, so the stimulus, the trigger could be the come to bed comment, could be um, the wait comment from before um, and all that. Excellent. Okay, How? so let's switch gears. How could she manage her internal reaction? So we have this manifestation of she's moving away. How can she manage this? How can she get regulated and and be able to deal with this in a way where she's not kind of flooded with her own emotional reaction. Pause, awareness. Yeah, I love that. Taking a pause before responding. So even with the not, that's not appropriate, perhaps if she was able to include just a small pause to give herself a chance to uh, process what's going on, That could help. That could be the start of um, her being able to respond in a way that feels in line with her values as a helping in the helping profession. Um, Being aware of her feelings that she has activated, being aware of feelings and body warning signs. Excellent. And so she's able to manage all these things. We are going to assume that the consequences are gonna be better if she's able to do that. Yes, um, let's move on to the next slide. And we're not gonna go into this too deeply. Um, because we want to uh, finish up today, um, but Chloe could use the limits framework to set boundaries with Roger uh, around his suggestive comments. Uh, that final line, talk with a supervisor. You know, she could use that NVC, the nonviolent communication, in that communication with her supervisor. Be like, okay, maybe it's not sexual harassment in your eyes, but this is how it feels, and I can't do my work in this way. Um, She can try to implement appropriate boundaries, maintain a professional role, try to add those pauses in so that she's not so reactive, um, and the other two. So I think uh, I see a couple more comments. Stop, stop. Oh, stop acronym. Stop, think, observe, and progress. I love that. Therapy to address unresolved issues, awareness of triggers, work with a professional, help regulate and communicate. Beautiful. Thank you all wonderful uh, suggestions and um, really appreciate all your uh, engagement in these vignettes because I think getting into the weeds here is helpful.
0: Okay Um, yeah that was wonderful discussion so many so many good ideas and a lot of people saying sort of overlapping similar things so that's that's great it sounds like everyone has a sense of how to manage these situations, because they are tough um, and to manage that communication with clients and with teammates. All right, so we are now going to move to wrapping up, and this slide contains everything you have learned in the past four sessions. Uh, So congratulate yourselves. This is a lot. Um, I'm going to just read through them extremely quickly. Uh, we defined boundaries. We talked about communicating boundaries, power and boundaries, trauma informed care, self disclosure, transference, and counter transference. On day two, dignity of risk, stigma and bias, radical acceptance, burnout and helper reactions to client trauma, boundary crossings and violations. And last time we talked about trauma exposure response and trauma stewardship, self care, values clarification, dual relationships, problematic reactions to boundary strain, managing attraction and team communication. And then today, the four communication styles, NVC, the experience of saying no, de-escalation, responding to sexually inappropriate behavior, cultural humility, and culture-based counter-transference. That is a lot to get through in eight hours. Uh, great job. We have had a wonderful time uh, training and learning alongside you, uh, as we always do. Um, all right, let's go. Well, practices to continue, who can guess? Self-reflective practices. Um, and self-care consultation and effective communication. I can also promote our learning communities. Um, for a while, we've had sort of learning exchange meetings that happen bi-weekly or weekly for different roles. We've had one for supervisors, case managers, psychiatrists and NPs. Um, and we just started a new community of practice that will meet bi-weekly around person-centered care. Um, Chelsea and I will be doing that over 12 sessions if you're interested in that. Um, you can check that out on our channel page. You can go to learning communities and see the list of them there. Now we also have these neat little pages, these sort of Facebook-esque pages where you can make posts, post resources, um, discuss, uh, keep up with when the meeting times are or find the Zoom links or to register for them. Um, those will be sort of the, the hubs for each of these um, role-based meetings that occur ongoing, and then that community practice
1: and person-centered care that I just mentioned.